Hello there, and welcome to Gooner U. My name is Dove, and my friend Keith is here to bring me up to speed on everything I don't know about soccer and Arsenal. This week, we're covering match weeks five and six, it turns out, because there were two crammed into the same week, and one was technically five, and the other was technically six, with matches against Aston Villa and Manchester United. So hello, Keith. Hello, Dove. How are you? Doing all right. How are you? Good. Are you surviving your... I don't know if we want to spoil the results of the game, but are you surviving the first <laughs> defeat? Well, let's let's address that for a minute. I believe since we state very clearly which matches we are covering on any given episode, I believe this is a spoilerific podcast. If you haven't ever watched the game yet, don't listen to the episode about it. I won't put scores or mention who won. I will be oblique wherever possible in stuff that you see before you start listening and the summary and the title and things like that. But um, I, once we start talking, I'd say it's it's fair game. Uh, yes, I, I I am coping, and we'll we'll talk about that. It actually, I'd started coping a little bit before the game started, unfortunately. Yeah, uh, yes, yes, yes. Your your viewing schedule, but anyway, yes. So, well, this actually wasn't entirely my fault this time. We'll we'll get to that. So. So first, I just have a couple of items of follow-up from previous episodes. Um, that So I listened to our last episode, and I was noticing you would sometimes say coach, referring specifically usually to Mikel Arteta, and you would correct yourself to say manager. And I kind of have used those terms interchangeably as well. I wanted to find out if there was a technical difference or if they've started using manager instead of referring to coach or, or what the thinking is there. Yeah, so there, there's actually two answers to that question. The first is that on some level, it's just the preferred nomenclature of the sport. And much like baseball has a manager or hockey or football has a coach in soccer, they have the manager. Oh, okay. General term. Now there is actually, there's a second answer though, which is it does actually depend. Uh, There are some who are listed as coaches uh, the the top man, so to speak, who are coaches because they hold a less important role in the club. The manager has much greater influence over uh, player uh, recruitment and team building, uh, works with, um, in Arsenal's case, Adu, who's the director of football, as opposed to a coach who sits in his office, gets handed the players and says, okay, I will I will figure something out with these guys. So with Arsenal, does that mean that Arteta is coach and manager, whereas in other clubs it might be a split role? Uh, in that case, you would use coach in the way to describe an assistant. Okay. Uh, so his the other guys you see with him are the coaches. He is the manager. Now, it's interesting. When he started, he his title was initially coach because before him, if you go mostly through the history of the sport and then especially the recent history of Arsenal, the the head man was the manager and that the expectation was the manager was sort of the figurehead of the club. Hmm. Prior to Arteta, uh, Arsenal was managed by a man named Arsene Wenger, uh, who if you're an Arsenal fan of a certain age, pretty much prior to, say, 2015, 2013, Arsene Wenger is, is the iconic figure of the club. You can go further back, some of the older ones in the team's history, George Graham, um, or Herbert Chapman, who's uh, you know from the 1920s and 30s. Uh, but the idea of the manager, much in the same way a college football program looks at their coach, is sort of is the figurehead, the, fi- the figure that everyone looks at. Uh, Wenger was there at Arsenal for 
over 20 years, the same period, uh, Manchester United's famous manager, Sir Alex Ferguson. Um, there's been a move away from that in recent years. The idea of reduce, certainly not having one person in charge of everything at the club anymore, dividing it up, creating positions like director of football, equivalent to an American general manager. Uh, but there is still a sense when Arteta was hired, he was to be a coach. Others would handle that bigger stuff. But he's taken on a greater role in terms of molding the image of the club and in a lot of ways is the figurehead that you would expect a, a more traditional or old school manager to be. So mm -hmm. that's a there's actually a, what seems like a simple question is actually quite complicated. Interesting. Yeah. Arsene Wenger. Can you spell that first name? Sure. A-R-S-E-N-E. -E. Wow. So... Okay, uh, on the one hand, I'm relieved that it isn't spelled exactly the same as the crime. I was imagining like his brother Larceny or something. Um, but it's also weird just how close it is to the name of the team. It's like he was fated. Much mirth has been made of that. Uh, he was from, from outside of Strasbourg, so the German part of France. He's, he's French. See, that might not have been foremost in his parents' minds when they were naming him. <laughs> Interesting. Fate, but fate conspired. Yeah. So as, as promised last time, I was paying attention to offsideness as I was watching the, this week's couple of matches. And I wanted to just reconfirm my understanding and have you correct anything if I'm, if I'm still getting it a little bit wrong. So when the ball is passed toward the opposing team's goal, at the time that it's kicked at the time that it is passed forward, the player who ends up receiving it can't be past the last defender, you know, which I realize that there's also the goalie, but there needs to be a defender and a goalie or two defenders on the other side of him in, in broad strokes. I know there were the technicalities, but as far as the spirit and the generalities of how it's supposed to work, is that, is everything I said at least correct? Yes, I believe so. I'm just okay. sort of listening and picking the words together. And that's just, you know, you as the the, the relative novice won't use the, the jargon, which is to your credit sometimes, right. of course. And, and I'm not trying to, and I, I realize I'm, I'm not a referee. And I'm not a referee in this regard. I'm not the one trying to make the calls. I'm just trying to know what standard I'm holding the referees to when they are making the decisions. So, so good. Okay. Right. And I and, think, you're, and um, I think what, we, what you described there, yes, is correct. It is the position of the player when the pass is made. Right. Okay. And that, that makes sense. Yeah. You'll see on the replays when they slow it down, um, the, the, the freeze frame they'll give you, if you look at the guy with the ball, you see like he, they're trying to freeze at the moment he's making pass, but he's making contact. Right. Yeah, and I know they didn't do this that I saw in the last couple of matches. They had done it before we had our discussion about offsides, but they draw a whole series of lines mm -hmm. across the field. And at that time, I didn't know what those lines were each representing. So I'll, that's something I'll be looking for uh, as right. they and do that again. And that's only going to be done through uh, the, the VAR, the video assistant referee. It's only done as right, part of exactly. that process. And yet, the, and the, the lines are determinative. They, there's no interpretation there. Once they are drawn, if it shows the player in an offside position, he's offside. That's it. There's no discussion. Yep. 
Yeah, it makes sense. And we will definitely be getting to the VAR when we talk about the Manchester United match. <laughs> so one other question about offsides came up because I have a mind that uh, I'm a software developer by trade and I'm always thinking about the edge cases. So you talked about when you throw a ball in or if it's a corner kick, when it's a dead ball coming into play that the offsides rules don't apply. What about a keeper punting it like if if so let's say that ramsdale punts it across the field and arsenal has managed by some turn of events to have a player like right in front of the goal like clearly in an offside position but the ball's punted to him by the keeper he's is that considered offside he is offside right the only times when it's we are allowed to be receive a ball from an offside position really is on throw-ins and corner kicks okay very specific dead ball situations Okay, those specific dead ball situations, right. It seemed like that could be under the umbrella of dead ball and could be a loophole. Okay. Not that it would be easy to do, (laughs) but okay, cool. So that's good. So um, it was interesting. I was thinking because both of the games were within a week of each other that they would be within the same match week. That is not the case. Apparently match weeks start on Sunday, it seems like. So in, in a sense, you know, if you go back, go back in time, the ideal was you would only play one game a week on the weekend. And so because of the condensed schedule coming as a result of, of the winter world cup, they're playing games in midweek, but every, everybody played between Tuesday and Thursday. And so that was essentially it might be better to say match day five rather than match week, but they're traditionally done as weeks. So. Gotcha. Okay. So yeah, so we're covering match weeks five and six, even though the games were four days apart from each other or so. Um, But yeah, so if we were to start with uh, match five, which was August 31st, the final score was Arsenal edging out Eston Villa two to one. Um, to me, it felt inevitable in the first half of the game that Arsenal was going to score. They were just relentless in their attacks. And it was surprising that they only ended up scoring the one goal in that first half. It seemed like it should have been a much higher score if they had had more successful attempts, but it was just the ball like practically never left that half. Yeah. Half the field. I, the, I, I was, I wasn't able to watch all of the half, but I, I saw parts of it. And then of course some highlights as well. And yeah, Arsenal was, was, as they say, on the front foot, they were, they were pressing forward, they were making passes, but the problem they ran into and this has been an issue the last couple of games. It certainly was an issue against United is they're a little bit wasteful. They can generate these opportunities, but they need to be a little bit more ruthless in burying those chances. And and you saw that with Aston Villa at some level, it did almost hurt them. And then it, it really did hurt them against, against Manchester United, but certainly they, they played very well. Again, Aston Villa has not had a very good start to the season and, Definitely, as I saw, played in a. They definitely seem to be more interested in in mucking things up defensively rather than attempting to play with the ball. Um, they were charitably said to say they were they were in an inferior team in terms of talent, and that's why you play that way. But you know that's it plays into your game planning. You have to play with what you have, and for them, it was sitting back and trying to absorb pressure, and they they did it fairly well. But yes, Arsenal generated a lot of chances, and you. You hope over the season they'll start to convert more of those. 
Right. Giving a preview of what we're going to be talking about after we're done talking about the, the week's couple of matches. Uh, we're going to be talking about penalties as our, one of our big topics. Um, one penalty that I thought was completely, well, I don't even remember. I think the reason I noted it is because it may not have been called as a penalty, but there is this ridiculous defensive play against Saka. They were tucking on his jersey and then ended up throwing him to the ground. And that's something we can discuss in the broader category of penalties later and what, what is allowed and what isn't allowed. But that was like, whoa, what, what are you doing? Yeah, I, that, that, was a, that was a very curious non-call. Um, you 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 are right to be curious. You're right to be frustrated. I think that that's the fact that that <laughs> was not called a penalty is the conspiracy theorist in me who comes out during games says, of course they didn't call that for <laughs> Arsenal, which isn't really fair. It's not how it works. But and and, and we have to say, um, especially this weekend in particular, VAR had made a number of curious decisions to the point where the referees union and the league are reviewing their procedures after the fact. Interesting. I didn't know that. There are a number, and you can see a website like NBC Sports, who obviously televises and covers the league. They'll talk a lot about some of these controversial calls or non-calls in these cases. And there were, there's always a few curious ones with replay. There were a lot of them and a lot of really important ones too, uh, really critical to the outcomes of some games. The next thing I noticed is just a funny little thing. I'm sure there's a good reason for it. I just wasn't sure what it was. I noticed at one point, Ben White had the ball tucked under his shirt before he threw it in from out of touch. What? <laughs> was he wiping it off? Is that something that the player is expected to do? What, what well, was going on? Yeah, he was. I, I, didn't, I didn't quite catch the weather, although it's, it's England in the, the essentially the fall and winter where it rains quite a bit. So yeah, I'm, I expect it wouldn't surprise me. If it's raining. You'll see them do that though, to, to wipe the ball off so that they get a better grip on it. That's all that's going on. Okay. Yeah. Interesting. Because what, what will happen is there are, there are spare balls sitting on the sideline. So if something gets punted into the stand, there's an extra one there ready for them to pick up, but it's just sitting out there in the rain. So once you're ready to throw it in, you grab it, you want to wipe it down. Yeah. That's, that's what's going on. Oh, okay. That could easily be what happened. Yeah, so uh, the the next question that came up uh, related to one of the plays was there was a corner kick, and Ramsdale was protesting heavily that he was being messed with too much. Uh, there, as as we described in the last episode, there's definitely a lot of chaos when you're in in the go- in front of the goal when the ball's being kicked in there, and especially on a corner kick where everybody is there ahead of time, ready for it. Um, how much are you allowed to? mess with the goalie because they're definitely trying to push him out of the way and jostle for position what is allowed and what is not allowed so what what you see there and and what they called on the field is that the offensive player had established position and he's allowed his spot the keeper cannot like barrel through him you're allowed as an offensive player to establish a position and the argument is that he established his place first ramsdale is trying to push through him hmm. which he wouldn't be allowed to do and so he's he's effectively shielded ramsdale off which is what allows part of what allows the ball to go in he's a little handsy with ramsdale very clearly has his arms wrapped around him as well yeah which is one of those things you would hope var would catch but apparently it didn't you know that's a that's again a, it, there is a judgment call inherent in that uh, but but Ramsdale you know is not entitled free reign as an offensive player you are allowed to 
established position and 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 be and interfere in that way really what makes that objectionable again from the perspective of an arsenal fan is the fact that he's clearly grabbing onto ramsdale as well now he might argue oh i'm just trying to maintain my balance okay sure (laughs) right yeah so um and then the larger observation that I have on the game or that kind of leads to a question. I noticed this from last season in the all or nothing documentary, and I've definitely seen it in the Aston Villa match and maybe even one or two other matches so far of a season, the phenomenon of back to back goals. It seems like this happens a lot. You'll go scoreless for a long time. One team finally breaks through. They manage to score a goal and within a few minutes, maybe 10 minutes tops. But I think in, in the case of the Aston Villa match, it was literally within two minutes or something like that. The other team rebounds and scores a goal to cancel that one out. Is that something that is a wider phenomenon in the league? I remember in All or Nothing, it had worked against Arsenal, I believe, at one point. Is that an Arsenal tendency? What what leads to that? It's got, It seems like almost goal procrastination, like they had it in them, but they needed a little bit of extra motivation, just the, the fear of losing from being behind. What's with that? Um, I would say I mean, that's definitely a, a shift. You know, it, it, the game is so long and goals are so rare that sometimes they're going to seem bunched up like that. And sometimes hmm. they are, or sometimes they're they're spaced out evenly. What we've seen a couple of times this year, and it's particularly leading to to some of the victories Arsenal's had, is that they've they've done a really good job of bouncing back from conceding a goal. That they come back and score so quickly, in some ways, is a a positive sign of their uh, their attitude or their fortitude. That they're they're a mental toughness to not go into their shell after giving up a goal. They give up the goal but they immediately bounce back and right to hit back even harder instead of just withdrawing. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And that's, and that's part of the maturation of the team. It's a sense of their, uh, people are going to talk about it as a sense of their, their maturity or their killer instinct, which I think is partially true, but I think it's also just, they've, you know, there's a, they're also in a really good run of form that they've been able to put themselves in good positions and bury those uh, chances when they come up. And that's just, that's just what you do when you're, when you're feeling good. Yeah, that makes sense. I also found it amusing that Aston Villa has one player named Mings and another player named Ings. Uh, those mm-hmm. are both, to to my ears, fairly uncommon names that are so similar to each other, and to have them both on the same team can't make things easier on the announcers. <laughs> pretty, They're both pretty English names, I have to say. Are they? Okay. They're new to me. <laughs> I, would, I would call those fairly English. But yeah, Do you have any more thoughts on the Aston Villa match? Uh, no, I think I think the big thing was just there. You know, was it, they deserve the win? They Arsenal did a really good job, as we said, of, of bouncing back from giving up the goal, and and it, you know that's to their credit. That's how you win. That's how you win five games in a row. Is you you take those opportunities, and you make the most of them. So uh, we are here now. It is match six, September fourth, two thousand twenty-two, against Manchester United. So how I came to this game. Uh, I knew that the game was Sunday afternoon. I was not available to watch it Sunday afternoon. I sat down sometime on Sunday evening, ready to watch it because from the other games where I've gone to do that, that's been an option. It seemed like the game was available to play from the beginning, just about as soon as the thing's over, they turn it around and let you do what Peacock calls a replay. Now, 
I sat down. My my ritual, by the way, is as soon as each game is over, I go in through the Peacock app and I add to my watch list the next match. So it's ready for me. I just launch the app and go straight in and watch it. Now, when this one was showing up as not available, I was confused. I was wondering what the heck was going on. It was telling me that it wouldn't be available until 930 the next morning. And so I wanted to double check that I add the wrong match, but what what was going on? I had no idea. So I then left the main screen of Peacock, which is usually the only place I've been going before a match, before watching the match. And I go into the Premier League section of the app where a headline greets me on some kind of replay or clip that they have. Arsenal, perfect. No more. Thanks to MU. Uh, <laughs> that was really frustrating. Welcome to sports in the 21st century. Yeah, at least what I can say, what, what I was thankful for as I was watching the match, is it wasn't specific enough to where there was still the possibility of a tie. <laughs> I didn't know they were going to be so soundly defeated as they were. I thought that there was a chance that it might have been an, a closer ultimate game than it than it turned out. And, and I shouldn't I shouldn't say that. That's not totally fair. It was a pretty close game. The score ended up being more separated than than the other matches they've had so far, um, in which they've won. The, the score line definitely flatters United, but they all they all count for three points. So yeah, yeah. So, but the, I, that that was an unfair characterization. The game itself was actually really close. It was very entertaining to watch. It was a very close match. I could tell. It seemed to me watching it that man. Manchester United was the most put together of the teams that they've played so far, where you could tell that they were the the possession time seemed to be closer to 50-50 instead of being as lopsided as I've noticed it being before. Yeah, I mean, and Manchester United is is fairly well managed. Uh, their their new guy is is pretty good. They certainly have more collective talent uh, than the teams that Arsenal's played to this point. Yeah, they're. Yeah, they were certainly there was between the, the talent and I think they had a really they had a very clear game plan for what they were going to do and for the most part executed it very well. And we can I imagine you picked up on what a lot of it was, but we'll we'll definitely get into that. For me it was interesting. This is the first time I recall this season seeing what I see Arsenal calls the third kit. They're not home, not away, but both of those colors kinda conflict and make it tough to differentiate versus the team that uh, is home. So they were their third kit, which was the black with gold lettering. And because Manchester United's jerseys are bright red, it took me a long time and a fair amount of focus <laughs> to be rooting for the right team toward the beginning of the game. It was it was definitely by habit easier to root for the team in red, especially with soccer compared to other sports where of necessity, the camera is a very wide view of the field the whole time. It's very seldom during gameplay zoomed in because you just want to show as many players as you can because that's a big part of following what's going on. So everyone's so tiny with jerseys that are basically the same color as Arsenal. It was a little bit of a mental challenge at first. I, I had a little trouble with that too, but I think for slightly different reasons. So hmm. to sort of point this out, the every team has their their basic color, their their, their the kit. So for, for Arsenal traditionally is is red with white sleeves. Uh Manchester United yep. is red, Liverpool's red, uh a team like Newcastle wore black and white stripes. So everyone has their sort of very traditional color design. And then because those will invariably clash starting 
you know, years ago, they started making what was called the Clash Kit, or a second one, that you would wear if, like you see with Arsenal and United, you can't, they're wearing the same colors. Mm -hmm. Arsenal, for years, has traditionally worn yellow as their second color. Right. And there are a number of uh, yellow kits Arsenal has had over the years. And then traditionally, uh, they if they needed a third, for some reason, they would usually go with blue. Now, starting in about mid-early 2000s, as clubs realized they could make a ton of money by selling shirts, every year they come out with slightly new designs, and they become more experimental, more different colors. Yeah, this In this year, it, you know, Arsenal's gone with, technically the black is their second kit. They haven't worn it at all, but the black is the second oh, one. Oh, interesting. The, the pink one is actually technically their third. You know, that's that's right. I remember seeing that on the site when I was looking at jerseys. Yeah, no, right. that, and, that is accurate. Yep. And, and, and the red with white sleeves is the primary, and the other two sort of switch out depending on which one they want to sell that week? How does <laughs> how do they clash with the team they're playing? There's all kinds of weird ways that that works its way into uh, the decisions they're making as far as what they're wearing. I mean, but you'll see, for example, this this weekend, Arsenal will play Everton. Uh, now they're going to play them at home, but Everton's regular color is blue. They're going to be at they're going to be in London at the Emirates. They're going to wear blue. Arsenal will wear red and white, the red with white sleeves at Everton, at Chelsea, at Tottenham. When there's no clash, you will traditionally go with your regular one. Oh, interesting. Okay, so it's not like what I'm accustomed to in American sports where you do have your home jersey and your away jersey. That There isn't really that distinction, I guess. Exactly. And, you, and you're seeing even American teams are starting to drift away from that in various huh. ways. But in soccer, it's there's your primary and then the the second or third, depending on what you need. Interesting. Well, thank you for that. So, yeah, um, wow. Again, and you'll you'll notice this is a recurring theme with me, but just amazement at Martinelli. That guy is so fast and handles the ball so effortlessly. Yeah. And what happened to him with that goal? <laughs> well, that's. I mean, it was a, it, for, certainly before VAR stepped in. It was a, the pass he receives. The pass he gets from Saka is is delicious. Yeah, and, and that fi the finish was it was excellent. That kind of chip over. Over David De Gea, who's a very good shot stopper, it's very disappointing that that ended up being for nothing. Well, yeah. So from what I was hearing on the commentary, they they were pointing out some interesting things I didn't know to look for with this. So they were saying with VAR that they are only supposed to intercede when it is basically a red card level offense like when it's something that is really severe that the ref on the field misses is that accurate the phrase in the rule book is a clear and obvious error yeah that's yeah that's what they had said right right and so what makes that frustrating from an arsenal perspective it, it, so the, the the goal was called back because the the through var they claim odegaard fouls um it was christian erickson and he fouls him to get possession and that's when the arsenal attack began if you watch the replay, the referee is looking right at that play. Yes. He, he has a clear line of what's happening. He's looking at it. And he was not far away. And decided not to call a foul. Now, if you, if you watch that play, and, the, you know, this is one of those where the replays always tend to make it look worse when everything's in slow motion. Yeah. <laughs> you could watch that play, and certainly if you were a United fan, or even arguably a neutral look and say, there's contact there. You could call that a foul. But in the moment it happens, he has a clear view of it and chooses not to call the foul. 
And so for the him to then come over, watch it many times on replay, where it invariably will look worse in slow motion, that is not in, it's not according to the letter of the law. Forget the spirit of it. Yeah. At least that's what it seems. And so, I mean, there's an understandable frustration about that result and how that came about. Yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think you could easily make the case had that not happened, you could see Arsenal possibly winning the game, not just looking at the numbers, obviously one more goal, they still would have lost, but I think the blow to them to have the high from being the first ones to score on a really well done play to having that taken away from you and putting you on your back foot that I could see just their, their momentum just got shattered. Interesting though, I actually I, I'm going to push back on that though in, in two ways. Oh, yeah? One in in sports, they'll call it one is the the fancy term is the fallacy of the predetermined outcome. Right? If they score that goal, they still lose three two. Well, no, of course that changes the entire game state. Right. That's the point I'm making. Right. But the other side of that, I think, is I actually thought Arsenal. I thought they started the game somewhat sluggishly, and I thought United actually started very well. Uh, probably about the first. 15, 20 minutes. Yeah. It really was after the goal that I thought Arsenal found their footing and established themselves. They they smell blood in the water, right? This is this is their moment. They're building, they're building. And then what ends up happening is you get towards really what you see United's game plan really was, which was to drop deep, sit back, defend, and then when they got the ball break on a counterattack. That's how they scored. That's not really how they scored all three of their goals, was the were those counterattacks. Um some poor defending, poor positioning on Arsenal's part. Uh, do you leave, you know, a, a, a talented player like Anthony alone to take the shot for that first goal? Um, you wind up with, I think, the, the second one, Erickson and Rashford, were essentially 2 on 0 with Ramsdale. That's what United was was building to do, was preparing to do, was sit back, absorb pressure, and break the other way. Yeah, maybe I was maybe I was projecting onto them more. I could see I could see what you're saying. I could see that, yeah. But yeah, interesting. That's probably the most attention I've given to a referee's call so far this season, <laughs> as did many, I'm, I'm assuming. <laughs> you were saying that they're actually talking about revising um, the policies and procedures for the referees? Well, no, what apparently they're doing this week is they're they're reviewing it, because I think the sense is essentially like what we saw there with, with the, the, the call on the foul call on Odegaard was... VAR is referees are allowing VAR to step in where it shouldn't be or, or make decisions in the way it shouldn't be. I, anytime you talk about replay, I think there's a, there's really two different ways you could use replay. You know, what, what is the purpose of, of instant replay? And this is true in, in any sport is the purpose to get the call exactly right. Mm-hmm. Or is the purpose to correct obvious errors? Right. And those, those are not the same thing. And the rule is written, and I think should be, the correction of obvious errors. And, and, and certainly in the pre-VAR days, you know, of 2018, you, you, you would see players who are clearly offside. You'd see handballs leading to goals or denying goals that weren't called, the obvious fouls that should have been called. You'd see all of those things, and they were missed in the moment, and so there it goes. Correcting those, I think, is perfectly reasonable and understandable. But it's being used in a way where they're trying to do the other thing, which is get every call exactly right, which is how you end up with these ridiculous lines to judge offside. 
Mm-hmm. I mean, and they are measured on some absurdly fine margins. It almost, I mean, almost. It's interesting how you watch them zoom in on those players. You see how pixelated some of those images become, and you think, "How are you making a decision based? How is this your your standard?" And right. I think what they're doing is having a conversation among the officials just to sort of say, "Okay, remind ourselves what we're doing this for. Why does VAR exist?" That's good. That's good that they have the self-awareness as a league to get on top of that before it gets out of hand. That's well, that's good. That's uh, encouraging. The, the counter argument is that it's already gotten well out of hand. Well, okay, further, further out of hand. The Premier League is, is the richest league in the world. It, it does a lot of things very well. The officials, by and large, are not good. Okay. And, and and you can see this. It's one of the few areas where they aren't comfortable, and no league seems to be comfortable with this, of importing foreigners all of the referees are english there's an odd quirk of faith that i think three quarters of them all grew up in the greater manchester area i don't mean that as a conspiracy (laughs) theory that they're pro-united though they always seem to have been but just the sense that they there's for a league that is so willing to bring in players and management and and uh, sports scientists and all these different people from all different parts of the world but the referees are all English. Yeah. That's like the one thing that apparently cannot be changed. And, you know, you, you, you see, it's interesting. You go to international tournaments like the European Championships or the World Cup, where they will select the- theoretically the best referees from different countries. And you don't see a lot of English referees get chosen. Certainly you see a lot fewer of them than you might expect, given the, the alleged standard of the Premier League and its status as arguably the best league in the world. And the prominence of the Premier League, yeah. Exactly. Well, then there's also, though, I mean, even as someone who hasn't really followed soccer very closely before this season, I was aware of various scandals that have happened over the year with the World Cup and talking about officials being bought off by, by certain countries and things like that. So I guess there's there can be other issues, too. In the World Cup, that's all allegedly. Yeah, of course. Although there are certainly instances where certain countries, usually based on hosting, you know, the the probably the most the the one that springs to my mind I think is uh, 1978 Argentina won the World Cup in Argentina the military junta that ran the country Argentina seemed to get a lot of really favorable calls throughout <laughs> huh funny but with with officiating at some point you know it, it, is it really a conspiracy is it really malice or is it just general incompetence let's be honest some of these Premier League refs just aren't very good. Well, yeah, I mean, I guess we don't know, or I don't know, I I shouldn't speak, I certainly, certainly shouldn't speak for you. I don't know, how how are referees selected even? They come up through the system, they have taken, um, they've taken various courses, Uh, they've refereed at lower leagues, they've been uh, judged and graded, and so these in the Premier League are guys who have essentially worked their way through the system. They are theoretically the best of the best which, you know, is in a kind of an uncomfortable thing to think about with the referees at lower divisions. If these are the best ones, yikes. <laughs> oh, very interesting. We should add, though, I, sh- I feel I should, since I know that part of our audience here is newcomers to the sport, especially like you who are joining in with your kids, refereeing is a very difficult job. They work very hard, and the official at your child's sporting event is not out to get you. <laughs> Leave them alone. They're good people trying to do a hard job. Of course, of course, definitely. Next question. I notice a lot of the time, a lot of the time, the goalie will be given the ball by his team for the purpose of kicking it or punting it very far away. 
And there are times where he's not punting, where it's not in his hands. It is sitting in play in front of him. And there will even be players from the other team not too far away who could, if they wanted to, turn around and quite possibly at least have a good chance at making it to the ball before the keeper does. Why does it seem like that doesn't happen? I noticed a couple times, uh, there were two times that I saw runners from Manchester United get close to getting it away from Ramsdale, but it did not happen anywhere near as often as I would think it should, given the type of pressure that Manchester was putting on Arsenal for the entire game. It seemed it seemed weird it, to the point where there might be a rule I'm not aware of coming into play. What's What's going on with that? Uh, no, when the when the, the the keeper has the ball, plays the ball with his feet, he is a he's a live player. He's subject to be tackled. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. a team like Arsenal and a lot of modern clubs. I, think, I know we talked, I think, in the first episode about the role of the keeper and what the keeper does. It's not just about using your hands to stop shots. That keepers now are expected to have the ball at their feet, play in a, a role in the build up. You know, when that all happens, it's live. Now, part of what may be happening deals with with the depth depth perception, which ties into the the wide range camera we see. It looks hmm. like they're really close, but if you change the angle, it turns out they're not really that close at all. Okay. Other times, you know, as a, as a player, you, you're expected to pressure the keeper, and that's what you'll see them do. And the keeper then has the option; he'll boot it away. He'll try to make a pass. He is not allowed to pick it up if one of his teammates has passed it back with his foot. Oh. If you see him head the ball backwards toward the keeper, he is allowed to catch it. So you will see sometimes, maybe if you're trying to time waste or other things, you know, the ball the ball will get, you know, will come back to him and he'll linger before going and then sort of grab it and fall on it. So falling on it is different than grabbing it out of the air with your hands. Is that it? No, that's basically the same thing. Is it, it, it the, the falling okay. on it is a lot of times the falling on it is a, is a time wasting thing because then you have to catch your breath, <laughs> you have to get up. Yeah, there's all yeah. those little things that just make it take a little bit longer. Okay. <laughs> Something else I noticed. I, I noticed after one call, it may have been after a VAR review or something like that. I noticed the manager of Manchester United just talking to the referee standing next to him about something. And I noticed later, but there was a referee standing next to Mikel Arteta too. Do the, does the officiating team keep a representative near each side's, um, by the way, what do they call it? Ben, I guess their bench. The bench um, I yeah. was about to say dugout. I know it's not a dugout. <laughs> the bench. Yeah. Although actually in some older stadiums, it is actually a, a, it's not called a dugout, but it is essentially a dugout ground. That's actually a very old design. Yeah. I, old Trafford's interesting because they actually looks like they're up. It looks like they're up in the stands. Yeah. Where, where this, where the players are seated. So there, there are, if you look at the field, there are four officials. There's the referee who's the head guy. He has the cards. He blows the whistle. You then have two linesmen. Those are the guys you see running on either sideline with the flags, and they are supposed to judge offside, throw-ins, uh, corner kick or goal kick, or any, and if they see a foul right in front of them, they'll wave to get the referee's attention that there was a foul. Right. Then the last one you see there is the fourth official. That's the one you saw Ten Hag, the, uh, the United manager, or Arteta talking to. Uh, he is there. He's supposed to be keeping time, so he's the one who tells how much extra time is added at the end of every Mm. half, which is a number. It's supposed to be based on how much time was wasted during the half. There is no real correlation. They've, they've done studies on this. That number seems to be entirely (laughs) random. Uh, He's also the one, he's got the big board there. So at the end of the half, he'll hold it up and it's got a number on it. And that's how many, the, 
the stoppage time, the minimum amount of time the referee is supposed to add on to the game until the the half the half ends. He is also the guy who is in charge of substitutions. So the players, when they're coming in, they report to him and basically say, I am coming in for this guy. So he'll hold up the board and he plugs in those two numbers. And you see the, the green number right. is the guy coming on, the red one coming off. And so he he is there basically determining, yes, you are on the roster, you're a legitimate player, you are allowed to come on, and and this is the person that's coming off. And then the referee, when it's time, will will stop. the When the ball goes out at a certain point, will stop prevent the other team the team from restarting and wave the substitutes on and that's when that happens okay thank you good explanation i'm glad to see that in the premier league they're not immune to random stats obsession they they commented the the commentators pointed out the one goal by manchester united was their 10th consecutive goal scored by left-footed strike I, I used yep. to think that statistics obsession was the exclusive domain of baseball. That is clearly not the case. Baseball remains the worst offender on that score. Part of it is there's been a much greater sense of stat collection. I, I imagine that number of the most consecutive left-handed goals is since we or left-footed goals is since we started tracking the stat in 2017 or something like that. Yeah, something. Yeah. Speaking of statistics that you wonder why anybody's keeping track of this Manchester United match. Uh, I watched it yesterday in replay. It was the third piece of entertainment I had consumed yesterday featuring a person named Emil. <laughs> it was a Goosebumps TV show episode that I watched with my son, the Phantom of the Auditorium, had a character named Emil. There was the latest episode, as we record, of She-Hulk, had Emil Blonsky, who is the abomination, and then Emil Smith-Rowe came in as a substitution late in the match. <laughs> so three Emils, not not all that common a name, but uh, common yesterday for me. <laughs> Almost serendipitous. Only he had scored. <laughs> so... Ronaldo, uh, seeing him play, he came in as a substitution late in the game. Um, has he always been a Manchester United player? He's one of the names, by the way, that I knew before <laughs> before this season, before watching All or Nothing, although he didn't make an appearance in All or Nothing. But when watching that, like I knew who he was. I'd heard of him before. So has he always played for Manchester United? I know he's been playing the game for a while. I thought he was retired by now. but No, he is. Uh, he, he was a youth player from in Portugal. I forget which club they signed him from, but he was signed with Manchester United. Uh, apparently Arsenal was, was in on him as well, but he ended up going to United. He was a mm. certainly a star player, a good player with them, uh, then signed a contract with Real Madrid, the, the big club in Spain. And it was at Real Madrid that he became global superstar is he is one of hmm. one arguably one of the two most famous people on the planet the other one being yeah. the barcelona's argentine superstar Lionel messi <laughs> um at real madrid he scored a bunch of goals won a whole bunch of titles all over the place he left real and went to juventus for a couple of years and then last year around this time he transferred a transfer signed with united and so he's been back there last season into this season there was a real chance he was it seemed like he wants to leave united and will could leave united although won't now because transfers are closed for the time being but yes he is he he has spent most of his career elsewhere but he did for a while play at united and has been there now for a little more than a year Oh, okay. So so that is fairly recent. Okay. So that concludes the things that I wanted to talk about, about the Manchester United match. Was there anything else you wanted to discuss? 
Well, I'll, I'll throw this out there. So it, we, we jokingly referred to it at the beginning, but this is your first defeat. How are you doing? <laughs> well, the blow was definitely softened by knowing up front that they weren't going to win. <laughs> that the best case scenario was a tie. <laughs> so I was watching it through that lens. It doesn't feel as bad to me as if they turned in a really poor performance. If it was just them getting trodden all over the whole time, it would have felt worse. It was a, it was a good competition. They, they did well. I was amazed by some of the plays that Manchester United made those couple of goals that they scored towards the end. Uh, but uh, Rath, Rath, what was his name? Uh, oh, Marcus Rashford, 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 right. Um, Great, great goals on his part. I mean, just uh, I don't know how he managed to get so ridiculously in the open for that one to have a one v one with the goalie like that. Well, a lot of uh, so yeah, I mean, a, a lot of that is some of that's poor defending on Arsenal's part. I thought our, our defense, especially on those plays, did not did not play them very well I, on their our, on United's first goal. Gabriel attempts a slide tackle on Christian Eriksen. It completely takes it. He misses completely. Takes himself out of the play. That was a very poor decision. Yeah, I saw that. Yeah. Um, also, yeah. again, especially the, especially the third goal, Arsenal's pushing forward for the equalizer, and their their midfielders are up forward. They had taken off players, uh, you know, defenders for more attacking players, and they're just essentially they all get caught too far upfield. And again, that's what United wants to do: is pull them in, pull them in, and then they have the speed and skill on the counterattack to break and really, really get them, which they did in this case. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but yeah, so no, you know, it's it's good. I, I didn't illusion myself that they were going to go the entire season undefeated. <laughs> it was way too early to start even thinking of that, but uh, they had a great run, and I'm, I'm sure they'll continue to, to do well. They're still at the top of the league, as far as I'm aware, and uh, I'm, I'm looking forward to our next match coming up is a Europa League match, it seemed like, looking at the schedule. Is that correct? Yes, Thursday nights. Thursday nights in Europe. Yeah. I believe they're in. I believe they're in Zurich, or at least they're playing Zurich. Apparently, it's somewhere else for stadium reasons. But they will be. Okay. They will be playing FC Zurich, who are the defending champions of Switzerland, but apparently are currently eighth in the Swiss league. So this is a game Arsenal, even with a very <laughs> a heavily rotated side, a lot of guys who haven't seen a lot of will probably get playing time in this one. Okay, Arsenal should win this game. Okay, uh, that's that's good to know going in. Uh, so uh, after having been slightly burned, so I found out the reason that the game didn't stream on Peacock until the next morning is apparently that was a game that was not streamed live on Peacock. Mm. I didn't know that not all of the Premier League games were going to be streamed live. I didn't try to stream this one live, so I didn't see that it wasn't streamed live until I went to watch it later that day and had to wait until the next morning. There are a couple that play on on television, NBC. Yeah, this one looked like it was on USA, I guess. Yeah. And I don't know, for, for yeah, for whatever reason, I guess when it's streaming on USA, even though that's NBC Sports and Peacock is NBC's thing, I'm sure it's some kind of rights negotiation that they didn't want it streaming in real time, even though they own that service too. I don't know. Yeah, exa- exactly. But so I started checking out, I, I found a website. I can uh, find it and put it in the show notes. I don't remember what it's called offhand, but there is a site that it's worldsoccer.com, something like that. There is a site that will tell you for a given team where to watch, or I think specifically where to stream all of their coming matches. They have arsenals listed through mm-hmm. like into October already. So looking ahead, it's 
it looks like there's only one other one that is not being streamed live on Peacock that I'll have to watch the next day on Peacock or something. But mm-hmm. um, these Europa League games seem like they're largely being carried by Paramount Plus, which I do subscribe to. On a technical note, one thing that I found was really cool. So I subscribe to Paramount Plus as an Apple TV channel. <laughs> so that means on my Apple devices, or I guess they're they're on non-Apple devices now too. I go to the Apple TV app, which does not require Apple TV hardware, although that is typically what I am using. Um, you go to the Apple TV app, and it's just content that you make available in that app, including sports. And what's cool is I was able to go in and say that I'm following Arsenal as a club. And when I went to add this Europa League game to my list for watching, they had already done it because they know that I'm following Arsenal. They assume that I'm going to watch all these matches. So I'm expecting any match that is going on with Paramount Plus, I won't need to do anything. What I was doing manually in Peacock will be done automatically because they let you say which teams you want to watch. So that's pretty cool. Hmm. So you can always count on me for the technical side of things, if nothing else. (laughs) So we've run long with with two matches, and at least one of which was very eventful. I did want to try talking about a couple larger conversation topics, one of which is transfer windows. I, I had seen that this week was the end of the transfer window. The only time I'd been exposed to the idea of transfer windows before outside of Ted Lasso was the uh, spring transfer window that ended in like January, maybe they call it the winter transfer window, but there, it seemed like there's a second transfer window that they were talking about closing when they were trying to get rid of Obama Yang, I think in the previous season that they were talking about in the all or nothing documentary. So how many transfer windows are there? How long are they? What are the rules around transfers? What do I need to know? All right. So basically to, give some semblance to the chaos of, of player movement there are two they're called transfer windows the big one is in the summer it's basically the end of the previous season up until right around the start usually a little bit after the start of the new season that's when most teams will do much of their business arsenal signed several players uh, they sold or tried to sell several players, and you'll see a lot of transactions happening in that in during that period. That window closed, uh, I think it was August 30th, September 1st. It closed in the middle of last week. Uh, no, it was, it was the first because it was the day after the Villa game because we tried to sc- sign mm-hmm. the Villa's players, actually. Didn't work. <laughs> um, the guy who scored, actually, as it turns out. But anyway. Oh, boy. Um, that would have been interesting. Yeah. Uh, the the other one is the it's called the January window. It's basically open in the month of January, uh, and that's a mid season. And you're you're not going to see a lot of permanent deals there uh, because a lot of teams don't want to make those kind of those deals at that point. You'll see a lot of loans or shifting out of players like Obama Yang, who were essentially had worn out their welcome for whatever reason. They they weren't going to play there, and it was better business for the club to sell them and get some money for them and get their wages off of the books. Loans, loans are kind of something that I want to talk about. Maybe we'll save that for another time. I'll, I'll make a note of it, but that that isn't something I'm aware of being done in other leagues. (laughs) That's, that's an interesting concept to me. No, it's essentially what it is. is just that you are loaning a player to another team. Um, Arsenal and, and a lot of bigger clubs have a, play a lot of players on loan they'll use it for younger players to send them to teams in lower divisions so they get playing time 
the idea, though, because it's a loan, either at the end of their loan spell, which could be a season, could be half a season, at the end of the loan spell, they will come back and be under contract with their club. Or if they, the club doesn't like something about the way they're being treated or the way they're being used, they can actually recall them in the middle of it. It's not very common. That's usually a really bad sign for all kinds of reasons, but, mm. but it, theoretically, but it has happened in Good to know. The the big topic I wanted to try and cover, which we've already covered just through the course of discussing these last couple matches, especially the Manchester United one, uh, I wanted to discuss officiation, penalties, specifically fouls, what what causes a free kick versus a penalty kick. What are the rules around being able to block a penalty kick? I noticed for the first time in the Manchester United match, the referee taking spray paint and actually drawing a line. I noticed in the past clusters of like three or four guys, and I didn't know how it was decided how many people are able to actually stand directly in the path of the ball. So all, all of that, like as much as you can tell me, let's try and keep it under five minutes and we'll wrap it up. And whatever we don't get to, we can carry over and discuss another time. I don't want to keep the show too long. Okay. So the short answer is that a foul will always lead to a free kick. Uh, if that takes place anywhere outside of the opposition's penalty box, it is a free kick, and that's where you'll see the referee pull out the the spray paint. And what he's doing there is the rule is no player no player on the the defending team is allowed to be within ten yards of the the ball before it's played. Oh, so okay. he's marking off where the ball is. He'll walk ten yards, draw that line. How many players stand in that wall? That's entirely up to the discretion of the the defending team. Uh, further away, you're going to have fewer players. The point is just to present an obstacle to force the team taking the kick to put, push it in a different direction or go somewhere else. As right. you get closer to the goal, you'll build a more substantial wall, which you'll even see at some points because they'll have these cases. What the wall will typically do is jump when the ball is kicked to try and increase their height. You will occasionally see guys taking advantage of that by kicking it low and hard underneath the wall. Right. And so what player teams have started to do, and you can see this, is they'll have another guy essentially lying down behind the wall. Yes, I've seen that. So that he's there on the ground. So if they try to do that, it hits into him. Right. Um, <laughs> Thank you for explaining that. I'd seen that done, and it did not make sense to me. Thank you. It's it's a relatively <laughs> new thing, and it's kind of goofy when you look at it. But once you, as soon as you realize what's going on, oh, that yeah. makes a lot of sense. Yeah, it's effective, yeah. No, it, it makes sense. I, I get it. It's it's an engineered wall of men. Yeah, exactly. Now, any any, and there are rules. They're starting to have rules about how many people can be in there. But I, it, it they ha, there's there's something about safety reasons tied in. I forget what the exact rule is to that. But that's all for outside the box. Inside. So when we're talking about the penalty box, mm -hmm. that is the larger of the two white boxes in front of the goal. Right. That's the, it's sometimes called the 18-yard box because that's how far away it is from the goal. Okay. And then the smaller one is the six-yard box. The six-yard box is basically, I think it's just there for, for measurement's sake. I don't believe it has any rule, specific, there's nothing rule-related tied into what happens there. Okay. Interesting. Any foul that takes place within the box, within the 18-yard box, that leads to a penalty. So at that point, you okay. have a penalty, a penalty kick or a spot kick where there's the little spot between the about 12 yards out. It's between the 6 and the 18. It's a little dot. The ball will be placed there, and then you, the player, whoever the team wants, can run up and take, and take a free shot at the goal. And that's 1v1? 
That's 1v1 with the keeper. And the, the keeper are rules. Right. The keeper cannot leave the line. The goal, he has to stand on the goal line. He cannot leave it until the ball is kicked. Hmm, interesting. That, that, I mean, it's a situation that is heavily in favor of the, uh, the shooter. It, very clearly so. Hey, yeah, absolutely, yeah. Which why penalty saves are, are, are really quite exciting, and penalty misses are considered so embarrassing. Right. And it's like missing a free throw in basketball, I guess. Every, yeah, everything has been designed at that point to give you a free shot on goal. I mean, you know, in a sport where goals are so valuable, a penalty is extraordinarily valuable, and a missed penalty is just is just devastating. So the penalty kick happens when there's a foul inside the penalty box. Correct. What constitutes a foul? And let's not go into the letter of the rule at this point. Let's just talk about the spirit. Because there's a lot of contact that seems totally permissible. Where, What rough lines do the officials use when determining whether something is acceptable or if it constitutes a foul? Basically, it's and, and we, but we can go to the letter of the rule here, I think, because I, well, I don't know if this is the current one, but they'll talk about ungentlemanly conduct. I mean, it, it's it's mm-hmm. overly physical play. It's something that's clearly done to not make an attempt, or even even if it is done to make an attempt on on playing the ball and clearly plays the man. Yeah, anything that's anything that's you know really physically impeding. And you're right it, when you zoom in at that level, especially given how competitive these guys are. There's a lot that happens that you just think, wow, why isn't that being called? They'll let a lot go, but a lot of times it's one of those. You'll, if a player hits the ground, uh, you know, there's a good chance a foul was involved. Uh, it, flopping accusations aside, a lot of times guys are fouled, mm-hmm. uh, kicked, tripped. Uh, jersey pulls are essential, are technically fouls. If you see a guy's jersey getting pulled, that should be called and, and theoretically should be a yellow card. But that's a that's a call that is not always made. Right. It not only jersey pulls like we were talking about Osaka in match five. Th- there were multiple times I saw players arms wrapped entirely around the bodies of other players. It just does not seem like that should be allowed. Yeah, I mean, you know, you are you are allowed to use your arms for positioning and for leverage, you know, put your arm in front of somebody and like push off of him. Right. Like elbow him a little bit or something. That sort of stuff is allowed, but yeah, you'll see you'll see gra- and, and you know, some of it's grabbing and again, a lot of this we can see on the replays and some of it looks some of it looks really bad when you're watching live from the camera angle far away, and then you see a replay and go, eh, okay, that wasn't actually that bad. Or, or yeah. you know, you see the replay and think, oh my god, that was awful. Okay, no. <laughs> um, everything looks worse in slow motion. But, but yeah, yeah there, there's generally speaking, it's it's one of those. The more you watch, that's one of those. Really, the more you watch, the clearer it becomes. That's a foul. That's not a foul. And even then, there's a lot of discretion, a lot of gray area, and sometimes you'll. I mean, I, I admit, I was a tiny bit surprised. You know, if we go back to the United game. Uh, the, you know the the foul that is eventually called on Odegaard that was take you know the took away Arsenal's first goal. There was a bit of surprise in the moment that it wasn't called a foul. I mean, he clearly makes contact. Erickson goes down, but the referee had a good view. I thought, well, he must have gotten the ball. It must have been a good play, and then apparently not. So, so when does a foul escalate to a yellow card? It sounds to me from what you were saying that it's really just a matter of how flagrant the violation is. I guess how exactly how ungentlemanly it is. Yeah, cards are given out for what's what's called violent conduct, uh, a, a foul that is basically it's a it's a really bad one. 
essentially is how you describe it. There are also some situations that are supposedly automatic yellows. Uh, a deliberate handball is an automatic yellow. If you are the last defender, you know, you take a guy down, that, that actually could be, sometimes it's given as a yellow. Sometimes that, that could technically be given as a straight red card. If you deny, what's the phrase? Denial of an obvious goal scoring opportunity. Wait, so that I didn't I didn't quite catch what you're saying there. So the last something about the last defender, if he does what? Okay. So if you're the last if 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 you are essentially the last defender, the last guy who can stop someone going in on goal and you take him out in a in a foul, you aren't even playing the ball, you tackle the guy or trip him without making any real even to making an attempt on the ball. Okay. You're the la- you've denied a goal an obvious goal scoring opportunity. You are you are definitely getting a card, and there's a pretty good chance it's a red one. So yeah, you're just trying to take him out of commission to stop exactly. him from scoring. The goal. other okay. the other thing you will see for yellows is they can be given out for what's called persistent infringement. If you if you go out there and you're clearly just hacking away trying to make fouls, if, especially if they happen really <laughs> close together, the referee can look and say that's three fouls in ten minutes. We're done with this yellow card. Hmm. And you'll see, and you'll see okay, that on occasion. That you, you may watch sometime and think to yourself, "Well, that foul wasn't. That was a foul, but it wasn't that bad." But then you have to, you think about it. Okay, that's actually like the fourth one he's done this game. Okay, you know. And then a red card is when it's really bad, or the red card is either a second yellow, which could be any of those things we've talked about, or there are yep. some cases of straight reds. Um, the big one you usually see is a guy going studs up into a player, the studs being the, the cleats, the spikes. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you go studs up into a guy, even, sometimes even if there is contact with the ball, you'll see it a lot, like guys going into the lower leg. I mean, that is a, that's a straight red. It should be a straight red, you know, obviously violent conduct. Yeah, you will see sometimes guys uh, after the play jostling. Certainly if you put your, allegedly, if you put your hands on another guy's face, you've seen instances of guys mm-hmm. putting their hands on this other player's throats that you know that's violent conduct that is that's not okay that's a red card and then the penalty for a red card is ejection from the game right you're ejected from the game and your team has to spend the rest of the game with essentially they can't replace you they play with one man down ah okay so that was one of my questions so it's 10 v 11 the rest of a game right and so a red card is a substantial penalty and so you'll see sometimes guys they'll talk about a player is on a yellow meaning he's picked up a yellow card he needs to be careful because if he makes right. a wrong step and picks up a second yellow, he's out of the game and his team's down a man. So after a red card is issued, the game ends. It, does is there any carryover into the next game? Because yes. I thought I saw that happen at one point. Yeah. Yes. So a, a player who receives a straight red card also gets a three game suspension. Oh. He can appeal that, and sometimes it'll be reduced down to one game if the ref, if the referee's union or the league looks and says, "Okay, it was bad, but not like real. Like we can't take away the red, but it wasn't that bad." Although they can rescind reds, there was a, actually a famous instance. I want to say it was about almost ten years ago at this point, where, um, and the referee essentially it was an Arsenal game. He he gave a red card to the wrong player. Oh no. <laughs> And so the player was sent off, and the referees, you know, the the league reviewed that after and said, "No, you're not suspended. You should not. You didn't even commit the foul. Uh, that oh, that will happen man. on occasion." 
were they able to retroactively suspend the right player in that instance? I don't remember what happened in that to him. They they pulled away the suspension. A straight red is a is a three game suspension. If you get two yellows and are ejected there, that's only a one game suspension. You can also pick up a suspension for yellow card accumulation. I don't remember what the number is. But at a certain point, if you collect a certain number of yellow cards over a b- number of games, and they might, you'll hear this later in the season, I'll talk about guys who are one card away from a suspension, they've picked up X number of yellows, the next one means they are suspended for a game. So, as this pertains to Arsenal, they they made hay in all or nothing about Granite Chaka being a frequent recipient of red cards. And there was one or two that they showed the red card being issued during one of the matches. What types of things does he get the red cards for when that's happened to him? So there's two I'm thinking of that have made appearances in the series. One was against Manchester City very early in the season, where essentially it was a violent tackle. It was a clumsy tackle. Uh, but it's one of those where you're kind of angry when it happens, but you're also angry because the player put himself in a position where the referee could have made that choice. So he's somewhat at mm-hmm. fault there. Uh, it was a bad challenge. It, you know, it's frustrating to get the red in the moment, but I can't say it was totally the wrong call. The other one he gets is when he, he essentially takes out a guy as the last man and receives a yellow or receives the red for that. And there's a scene right afterwards where because he gets a lot of stick from the fans for that. But there's a scene afterwards where he's in the locker room or working out with some of the players, and what he's what he argues to them is, I shouldn't even have to be in that position making the tackle because you didn't track back. You right. left me alone with this guy. I shouldn't even have had to make that play. Yeah, that was in the gym. Yeah. And I think what that gets into a little bit is we see, even as fans, even you know guys, even fans who, who watch a lot, know a lot, we see the end results of these plays, and we look and say, aha, he made a bad play there. What we don't see is, no, he actually did the right thing. It was someone else who screwed up that left him alone where this was the only play he could make. Mm-hmm. So it's there's an extra layer to some of those those things. And yes, Xhaka has picked up a lot of red cards since joining Arsenal. Some of them are his fault. Some of them are because he has developed a reputation. And there is a, a line around the right. Arsenal fan base when we see... Other players on other teams, Scott McTominay, do similar things to other to either to Arsenal players or to others and not get red carded. Well, if Granite Xhaka had done that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Right. The ref the referees know he's a recidivist. Yeah. He, he's he's <laughs> developed a reputation, not entirely unfairly, but it does get frustrating to watch similar plays get made by other players and not get carded, and then he does. Right. And, and one other thing to point out, because we're starting Europe next, the suspensions are only given out by the governing bodies. So we talked about the four different uh-huh. competitions Arsenal's in. So if they picked up a red card suspension, say, against United, someone picked up a red card against United, they would still be allowed to play in the Europa League game against Zurich, but they would have to miss right. the next three games run by, run by the Football Association. So that would be a Premier League game or the League Cup or the FA Cup. Right. Interesting. Yeah, contra that, if, if someone picks up a red card against Zurich, they are allowed to play against Everton that weekend, but would have to miss the next three Europa League games. Or any, you know, if it happens right. late in the Europa League and we qualify for the Champions League, those will carry over to next season. Red card suspensions oh, will actually wow. carry over the season. Oh, that's interesting. So if I have to imagine that follows the player, even if he gets yes. traded to a different team. 
Yes, you are. You are. You are missing. You're get. You are suspended for three games. Now, if he le- now, huh. if you know, if if it's let's say it's Jaka and he signs with a club in Germany, well, the Germans didn't give him a red card, so he'd be free to start. You know, as soon right. as he could. But you know, if it was in England and he had one that carried over, he would miss however many games he's supposed to uh, in the next hmm. Eng- games run by England. Very interesting. All right. Well, I definitely know a lot more about penalties now than I did before. So thank you for that. Which hopefully we, we're all learning a lot more about the sport now through all of this. <laughs> One really silly question that carried over from last week that I'm just curious about, and I'm hoping it's a quick one. If it's not quick, mm-hmm. tell me and we'll leave the listeners, all three of them, in suspense for next episode. Hi, Mom. <laughs> How is it determined what form the player's name takes on the back of his jersey. So you see with Jesus, he's got a first initial, but so does El Nene, which I imagine is a far less common last name. Yeah, that's 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 entirely player's choice, as far as I'm aware. So they choose what they want on the back of their jersey. Because it also, the one player for, I think it was the Manchester United game, uh, he was a late substitution, they were calling him Fabio. I'm trying to remember the last name again with a V. Fabio Vieira, I think. Oh, yes, yes. Fabio Vieira for the Arsenal. The now, Arsenal is his last name Fabio Vieira or is his first name Fabio and he just wanted his first and last name on the back of his jersey because they're fairly short first and last names? So he's one of those players. I mean, if you go to especially to to Latin countries like Spain or in his case, Portugal or Spanish or Portuguese speaking countries, they actually have very long names. Just looking this up really quickly, his full name is Fabio Daniel Ferreira Vieira. Um, <laughs> so, which is actually interesting because that means he's actually using what we would call his first and last names, uh, which isn't always the case with with players from from those parts of the world. Uh, as, right. <laughs> essentially, it's it's all his choice. Typically, you'll see guys, you know, for all kinds of cultural reasons, do things a certain way. Right. I, I could imagine the reason for Jesus being that he just doesn't want to have just the name Jesus on his jersey, that that would look weird. So he puts his first initial, so it's clear that it's him, perhaps. Yeah, I mean, a lot of it, some of them, it goes to their personal brand. You know, maybe when they first came up that, you know, he was G. Jesus because there was another Jesus I mean, on his team, which, okay. you know, if he's played in Brazil, that's not terribly unusual. So maybe it, it, right. some of its personal branding, you know, the our defender Gabriel Magalhães. It goes by Gabrielle. That's what he's called. That's what's on his shirt. Yeah, that was another one that led to this question. Because, right, it seemed like Gabrielle is his first name, but then that was on the jersey. So, right. And Suare was another one that I'd seen. Yeah, Cedric Suarez. Yeah, so. Yeah, so it's basically it's personal choice. Good. Thank you. Good to know. Well, that's all we have time for this week. We've gone over. I will do what I can in editing to to trim it down for all of you. But thanks for joining us here at Gooner U. Uh, I got an angry call from the Podcasters Union, and they also informed me that since we're now listed on Apple Podcasts and Spotify and some other places, I need to ask you, please like and subscribe. <laughs> subscribe to our show and share it with your friends. That's how we can grow and get more people listening and make sure that we are able to keep on doing this. Again, my name is Dove Frankel. You can find me on Twitter at Dove Frankel. Joining me was Keith, and you can't find him anywhere, so try me instead. (laughs) Bye, Keith. I'll talk to you next week. All right. Come on, you gunners.